I'm Nicole Davidson, and this is the Negotiation in Real Life podcast, the show where we take the lessons learned in real life negotiations to help you build your negotiation toolkit. We'll be hearing from lawyers, entrepreneurs, and senior business people about their best and worst negotiations. Negotiation is one of the most important skills for success in business and in life, but it's a skill we are rarely taught. For many of us, we develop our skills purely through trial and error. We see what works, discard what doesn't, and if we're lucky, we'll have a few good mentors along the way. In this podcast, we're going to give you access to an even greater range of negotiation mentors. Enjoy this episode and please reach out if you have any questions. On today's episode of Negotiation in Real Life, I speak with Tal Evans, the CEO of Majestic Computer Technology and Agile Health Computing. Technology plays a critical role in business as well as in our personal lives, and it has certainly played a central role in Tal's life for over three decades. From early beginnings in software development, founding technology businesses, negotiating and driving successful M&As, as well as international business opportunities, through to co-owning and running a large technology company, as well as business outside the tech sector, Tal brings a unique perspective as both an IT user or service recipient and service provider. In this episode, we discuss the challenges of negotiating with counterparts who are less experienced in negotiating building relationships and building trust, when to talk about people rather than the deal, building rapport to learn more about the other person's interests, the importance of having the right advisors on board, why listening needs to be the first part of any negotiation, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy listening to today's episode with Tal Evans. So, Tal, it's lovely to welcome you to the show. Thanks for taking the time to come today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Tal, we're going to be talking about some of the experiences that you've had as a business owner and someone who's gone through a number of business acquisitions. Before we do that, I was just wondering if you could give the listeners a little bit of background about what it is that you do and where you've come from. Uh, yes, look, absolutely. So I'm the CEO of Majestic Computer Technology, and in a nutshell, we're a technology managed services provider for uh, SME-sized clients, some small and medium uh, organizations. Uh, we, uh, we, we operate predominantly in Melbourne, though we've got clients interstate as well. Uh, just for those listeners who don't understand what a managed service provider is, we essentially become an outsourced IT provider for organizations that either don't have their own internal IT expertise at all, or may have some internal IT expertise that they need augmented with some additional capacity and capability from the outside. Thanks, Tal. And so it's great to have you here talking about negotiations from the perspective of a business owner. And you said to me, you've been through several acquisitions through your career. Can you tell me about one of those acquisitions that stood out and has had some interesting lessons for you around negotiation? Well, in, in fact, the simplest one that I can think of is the, the acquisition of Majestic. So I didn't found uh, Majestic Computer Technology. It was founded, um, we're approaching 30 years ago now. And so the business was founded by a computer engineer, uh, a fellow who was at the time 
young and gradually grew older. And one day he decided that he had enough and he wanted to retire. Over the years, he acquired a partner and the two of them owned and, and ran the business for many years together. They were never really, they weren't accustomed to buying and selling businesses as such. He never had that experience in his, in his kit bag. And um, the, the process of negotiation and indeed ultimately the, the acquisition took a significant period of time. If, if I were to put a time frame on it from go to woe, uh, it was at least six months, which for a small business, because we are a small business and what I acquired was even smaller than what we are now, is a, is a reasonably protracted uh, exercise. And it became very evident, Nicole, that part of the reason that that came about is because there was a, a mismatch of understanding around the process that an acquisition or a sale of a business normally takes. And what do I mean by that? In the first instance, there's a need to collect a whole bunch of information. And that information relates to financial uh, matters. It relates to a whole bunch of legal matters. It relates to the, the health of the business overall, the people in it, uh, information around their tenure, information around the strength of the contracts with clients and the nature of the relationships with clients. It's a whole lot of stuff that needs to be collated. Mm. And for somebody that is a, is a veteran at this or really understands what steps normally get taken in that process, it seems quite natural that those questions get asked. But when someone who's never experienced that before gets asked all these questions, it's very intimidating. Uh, it's, it's confronting. It's the, it raised all kinds of questions around, well, why are you asking for that information? At some point, there were some challenges. Or there was a, this perceived uh, or this misconception that we were going to take something away from them without paying for it. So it sounds like trust was a real issue in the negotiation. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so much so that at some point during negotiation, it, it broke down and they stopped communicating. They stopped responding back. So I then had to dig really deep and, and reach out to uh, that individual, to the prior owner of the business and say, look, I'm terribly sorry, but if I said something out of place, I apologize for it. I don't know what it might have been, but whatever it is, let's, let's start again. And fortunately, uh, he was happy to reboot. And the approach that I then subsequently took is to stop talking about the purchase of the business and start talking about us as human beings. So can I ask, just going back a little bit, how far into the negotiations were you when you realised that trust was a blockage here? Talked about, you know, asking for things that were normal that he was struggling with. How long did that sort of situation go before you realised or, or was there anything you realised that you needed to do to manage this situation around trust? Well, yes, when they stopped communicating. So it was only when it broke down at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because all of my previous experiences in acquiring uh, businesses in, in past life has, has generally been with people who, uh, who understood what, they were doing and if not they had the right advice in place to advise them that this is actually all normal and appropriate and what have you uh, so so that trust came from whoever was advising them uh, and incidentally in this particular instance they chose not to have the involvement of a lot of people 
advising them along the way. Uh, there were some small pieces along the way, uh, closer to the end of the process where they did, uh, but by then it was, the horse had already bolted. So uh, that was certainly an issue. Uh, so when, when they stopped communicating, I had to figure out what to do next. Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, do you think there are any warning signs that they're about to stop communicating or is there anything, if you could go back and do it again, that you would do differently to have prevented that breakdown? Absolutely. So if you're involved in a transaction and you're dealing with individuals who and, and I understood very early in the piece that they had they didn't have the, the commercial background. And I didn't insist on that because uh, it, it was met with a lot of hesitancy and there were questions around, well, we don't really need that. This transaction should be fairly simple. Why do we need to pay somebody money for all these things? At that point in time, that should have been a red flag to say, right, we've got a problem here. I can't handle this the same way as I would handle a transaction otherwise. I need to change tack. Yeah. Absolutely. Those, uh, those sort of grasping of who are you actually negotiating with from the beginning is, is critical, isn't it? Without a doubt. Yeah. And had I have uh, made that assessment earlier in the piece, we wouldn't have spent the first three months talking about all the things that I mentioned mm -hmm. before that we needed. I would have spent the first three months getting to know them. Because I think you said to me earlier that after this breakdown, once you started and, and the changing conversation, you said what you discovered was that what they were really concerned about was actually looking after their customers. So once you got that, or how did how did you get that information from them, and and what did you do when you had that information? Uh, that's that's a brilliant question. So to start off with, I had to establish rapport. And so we went back to basics and he and I spent a significant amount of time in some cases, starting in the early afternoon and finishing well into the night, talking about our life experiences and through learning and understanding his life experiences and to some extent his partner's life experiences, it helped me form a much deeper understanding of what they were like as individuals and what some of the potential inhibitions that they had stemmed from. Everything in this world, any kind of problem in this world has a root cause. And it's about uncovering that root cause uh, in order to find a common ground. And in their case, uh, he had come from uh, behind the Iron Curtain, from a European uh, background, but a, a communist European background. He was fortunate enough to be able to get out of there as a young fellow. And he made himself a life here in Australia, but his formative years were very much set in an environment that was full of distrust. And, and as a consequence of that, that was a big hurdle to, uh, hurdle to cross. So in spending a significant amount of time, literally just sitting down and sharing each other's lives and the reasons behind why we chose to do certain things in our lives and demonstrating empathy uh, where possible. I've never been through his particular experience, but I have parents who have come from a similar sort of background, and that allowed me to build that kind of a bridge. Uh, and ultimately, once I was able to demonstrate that, then the clincher was getting to the, the crux of what did he want out of this deal, which was predominantly, I want somebody that's going to take care of my team because they've been part of my family for a long time. 
and take care of my clients, some of whom have been my clients for 20 plus years. I want that to be a legacy for Majestic. I don't want somebody that's going to buy Majestic and absorb it into another brand name and another entity that they've already got and it'll just become a chewed up and in two years time, nobody will even remember what that was all about. And in fact, through that process, I was able to identify that he had three other parties interested in the business that he was talking to as well. So you got useful information for the deal itself yeah. in terms of the, the competition. Yeah, mm. that, that clearly he hadn't been willing to disclose up until you no. that level of relationship. So that's really no, interesting. Yeah. So that deal obviously then went ahead. Were there any other sort of stumbling blocks along the way or did it go relatively smoothly from there? Uh, yes, there were a number of stumbling blocks. Uh, one of them revolved around, so initially the aim was to acquire the business in its entirety. And that would have required a series of concessions to be made by him as a director and warranties put in place. He was very reluctant to even consider anything like that. He said, I don't I want to make a break, a clean break, uh, walk away from this and, and enjoy my life forever after. And not really to have to think about, you know, what may or may not happen in the future. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so it became, and, I, and that happened very late in the piece, Nicole. Yeah. And at that point in time, we moved from a deal that revolved around acquiring the, the proprietary limited, the entity, to uh, an asset acquisition, which required a whole rethink a different kind of contracts, uh, all the, the entire process changed. Uh, in fact, we ended up throwing out the contract that we put in front of him. We spent a, a significant amount of money piecing together um, because we were the ones with the experience. He yeah. didn't have the experience, so he didn't have a contract sitting there, a contract of sale ready. And ultimately, when it came to it, it ended up being a very, very simple um, vanilla asset sale contract uh, as you would for a fish and chip shop. That was the only thing that he was prepared to accept uh, was a, a contract of that nature, which had some of its own challenges, uh, particularly because we had difficulties around novating contracts, both from suppliers mm -hmm. and and customers and what have you, because the, the, the entity, the legal entity that now owned all of those assets, the IP and what have you, uh, had to change. Uh, so that presented some other kind of challenges. Um, but we, again, we overcame them. Obviously, we're three years down the track now uh, and, and everything's gone well. So Fantastic. And I know that wasn't your first business acquisition. Were there experiences that you had in the past that shaped how you approached this? And obviously, you found that this was different because you were dealing with this particular vendor. But where, what were some of the other sort of foundational experiences that you'd had up until then that had shaped how you approached the negotiation? Well, Nicole, I alluded to that before. Uh, I, I, I was involved in a number of M&As prior to that over nearly three decades at that point, um, now over three decades. But um, in every one of those prior instances, either the people 
who were involved in the deal directly all had sufficient commercial acumen to understand what were the steps that would get that would be undertaken, or alternatively had the right advisors in place that they had uh, acquired and brought into the mix right at the outset, so that whilst maybe they didn't quite understand, they had somebody with whom they already had that trust in place. Uh, and consequently, we could get through the motions of collecting the information uh, far more readily without those back and forth challenges. Yeah. So that brings me to a slightly different question, because I know you've talked about advisors, both for yourself and for the other side. When you think about advisors or when you're going into a transaction, what's your understanding of the most important advisors to have and who would you not enter into one of these transactions without by your side? It depends on the nature of the transaction. Mm -hmm. um, if we're specifically talking about business acquisition, I think it goes without saying that from a contract of sale, contract of purchase, whichever way side you want to look at it from um, a perspective, uh, there needs to be a, a legal person involved. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. Um, and I, I think I've looked at enough contracts over the years that there's not much that escapes me. Um, but anything other than a blanket vanilla uh, contract uh, requires the oversight of somebody that has that experience and that understanding. Even if just to pick out one minuscule little detail that I would have that would have gone unnoticed, the other piece of it, uh, from a legal perspective in the legal due, due diligence process, is to make sure that there are no liens or or other issues pertaining to that particular asset that are going to surface down the track that will present a problem if it is a whole of business uh, acquisition strategy or indeed the assets. So things around intellectual property um, and, and what have you. So to what extent would you expect your legal advisors to also give you advice on your negotiation strategy and help you through the negotiation piece? I think a lot of people come into transactions assuming that their lawyers are negotiation experts. What's your perception of that? I think that, and I, I'm sorry if I'm going to, because uh, I'm not intending this to be condescending at all. I think that lawyers, unless they have a significant amount of experience in negotiation, are actually not very good at it. And why not? Um, I, I'm not going to disagree with you, Tal, but um, what is it about them that makes you say that? I think that in, in every industry, and the same applies to ours as well in technology, there are those who know their subject matter so incredibly well. They slip with a misconception that because they understand the jargon and the lingo and things appear so obvious to them through years of practice, then it also appears very obvious to other people around them. Mm. And they communicate to the exclusion of people around them who don't share the same level of knowledge and understanding that they do about their subject matter of expertise. So I'm saying that because I see that happening all the time in the IT sector with technologists that are not having a human conversation with people, they're having a technical conversation with people who are not equipped to listen to that information and absorb it in the same way. Yeah. So you're saying the lawyers are then having legal conversations with people? 
which is perfectly fine if there are two lawyers in the room on both sides and they can just have their own side chat. Yeah. But, but if you're talking about the, the ensuring that the proceedings are, are flowing and that things are going really nicely, uh, all that language needs to be taken off the table. Mm. We can't Absolutely. be talking in acronyms. We can't be using terminology that somebody needs an explanation for. If it requires an explanation, the explanation needs to come before the term is used so that there's no room for misunderstanding. So, Tal, you've talked about having lawyers and you've talked about the fact that perhaps lawyers aren't always the best people to bring in to advise on a negotiation. What value would you see in having someone come in to advise that was purely based around advising on negotiation strategy? Do you feel like they would add value or is that something that you're confident to do by yourself? I guess it depends on the magnitude of the of the transaction. So there are certainly some things where I, I feel that my 30 plus years of experience in business has already equipped me to do that. Um, having said that, though, I'm, I'm very mindful that I'm not a bystander in the transaction. Whether I like to admit it or not, uh, my commitment to the transaction is vested both in uh, the commercial aspect of the transaction as well as the emotional aspect of that and someone who is independent that is able to provide that mediation uh, or, or the that advisory piece and remain very objective and ensure that they weigh up what both sides of the equation should get out of this in order to get a positive outcome uh, is an incredibly important part of the process uh, and shouldn't be underestimated. I can't imagine that anyone who is negotiating for either side can ever be objective enough to ensure that they are playing inside their head the two conversations that need to happen in parallel, which is the listening piece on one hand and not listening with the intention of speaking, but listening with the intention of listening. And, and at the same time also figuring out, okay, What's going on on both sides of the fence here? Who's looking like they're about to throw in the towel? And how do I make sure that I get this back on track so we end up with the right result? And only somebody independent can help in making that happen. That's, you've, you've hit the nail on the head with that, I think, because you know there's so many different psychological biases that are at play. Um, yeah. You know, anything from the confirmation bias to over-optimism to a whole range of things that have been shown to impact on people. And you're right, you know, you cannot, as a party to a, uh, to a negotiation, um, totally take away the impact of all of those. So it's a really interesting observation. Now, we've talked about these business acquisition transactions, and they're obviously really significant transactions in the life of a business. But there's a lot more negotiations that go on every time you're doing a deal with a client or every time you're signing up to a new significant supplier, you've got a negotiation that's there. How do you approach these sorts of negotiations differently to how you might approach an acquisition transaction? Engagements with clients are inherently different uh, and, and by design. Um, we're approaching somebody or typically an organization. Uh, in most instances, the conversation is with a CEO or a number of members of the executive team to have a discussion. Uh, and quite often, at the start of the conversation, they don't even have an awareness or an appreciation for how things could be done differently. So they may not even be 
ready to buy yet at the time that we start the conversation. And as a consequence of that, the conversation doesn't really start with a negotiation. The conversation starts with education. Now, in order to be able to educate, we need to understand who it is that we're educating and what they already know. Because if we make assumptions about their level of knowledge and competence in, in any uh, way, shape or form, we could end up barking up the wrong tree. And that doesn't yield a very good result. So a key factor in that, and, and you'd appreciate that, is listening. We do a lot of asking very simple questions and then we sit back and we listen. Yeah. And once the listening is done, and we then have a little bit more appreciation as to what it is that, what kind of angle we might want to take in a conversation. Our next step is then to uh, undertake a, a detailed audit. And as a technology company, our detailed audit, you would expect, revolves partially uh, from many SME IT providers wholly, but in our case, that's just part of the picture, revolves around understanding what equipment they've got, what it is that we're going to be supporting, what systems have they got, what, who needs to use what, and so on. That's part of the equation. The other part, and the more important one, are the interviews with individuals within the organization. So speaking with the st key stakeholders and building a complete picture of their, um, not just their organizational structure, mm. but of their organizational maturity as it applies to technology. Then, and only then, can we put together a proposal. And needless well, to say, sorry, go on. I was gonna say what's really um, interesting and I think a good thing about that strategy as well is through those interviews with the clients, you're actually getting more evidence to bring into the negotiation to support why they need to do what you want to do with them. Um, because yep. it's their own staff saying, here's the problems. It's not you saying you've got a problem. It's actually the staff going, this is where we've got all of these inconsistencies or inefficiencies. And so you're actually gathering the stuff that you need in the negotiation to convince the buyer. To not just convince, but play, simply play back to them. Mm. Well, you told us earlier that these are the things that are really important to you or that these are the things you aim to achieve over the next five years or that these are your objectives. That's what the board wants to do and, and so on. Uh, and that makes for a, a much um, a, a, a almost frictionless conversation. Now, we try as much as possible to take the negotiation off the table. We structure our proposals to clients with some building blocks. And upfront, we disarm that intent, intended. See, I, I find that it's like this. When somebody doesn't know what question they're going to ask you and you come to propose something to them, the most logical question for them to ask is how much? Because everybody knows to ask how much, right? But if you, at that point in the conversation, say to the client, look, if there is a genuine desire to work together and you like what you see and you like what you hear and you believe that we're going to get along and when we get to the end of the exercise, we believe that we can get along with you and we present you with a package that you can't um, stomach, that's beyond your reach, that's whatever, that's okay because we, we can have a conversation about that and we can peel back some of the elements that we proposed. 
We don't have to conquer the mountain in one hit. We can approach it in stages and demonstrate the return on investment as we go along um, rather than in, 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 in one hit. And that on many occasions has been incredibly uh, successful uh, for us. And, and I'll say this, more often than not, people don't really at that point feel the need that they need to negotiate, but rather there is a, a, a deeper level of trust and an understanding that there is a genuine desire to do the right thing by yeah. them. And so I want to move slightly differently. So one of the questions I ask everyone who comes um, on the podcast is, you know, you're a very experienced business operator. You've been through these significant negotiations. What's been the most significant thing that has made a difference to your negotiation abilities? Has there been any training or have there been any things that you've watched or observed that have really helped you develop your skills? Look, without a doubt, I don't think that I could sit there and pinpoint specifically on one particular thing. Uh, I am a very strong believer in ongoing education. I'm forever learning. So earlier in my career, when I first started employing some people, uh, one of the earlier courses I remember going to do is um, dealing with employee conflict in the workplace. And I've got a little certificate at the end of it. And I <laughs> sat through a series of classes. And uh, at the end of the story, I had some better understanding on how to have conversa difficult conversations yeah. with staff in order for them not to become uh, detrimental to the staff, to the business, uh, across the board. Yeah. yeah. I've made some probably more mistakes than I care to remember. Uh, some that I may be able to recall or admit and others that I probably don't even realize that I've made. And uh, there were no doubt instances where there, were, there was trial and error. Certainly from a, an M&A perspective, the first time that I was involved in one, uh, I was very poor at it. And uh, I sought some advice afterwards from uh, some people who had significant experience with the M&A process some of whom, a couple of whom uh, ultimately became mentors of mine. Uh, one of them was a partner from a large accounting firm and, and, and so on. Yeah. So I've always sought to have people around me. And as I, as I got older, I realized how important it is. As a young fellow, as a 20-something-year-old, you've got this uh, ego to deal with. I can do everything myself. I yeah. prove to the world that I can do. I'm superhuman. And as you get older, you realize that you're actually not, and yeah. you need help and advice from a variety of different people around you. Mm. Uh, and so making sure that you've got those resources uh, around you is, is important. And I think as we go through life, if we're uh, attuned to that, yeah. we build those kind of relationships and they become lifelong yeah. relationships. Uh, so that's incredibly important. Yeah. No, I think that idea of mentoring is really important. And look, as you said, it's interesting that you can remember this one course around, you know, dealing with difficult employees or difficult conversations, because I often think that, you know, and, and I run a lot of training programs based around, you know, anything from negotiation to difficult conversations to being effective in influencing. And I always expect that people will just take one or two things that will make a key difference for them. And, and often as it is, it is those key skills like, you know, just learning the importance of listening 
or learning how to ask better questions are fundamental skills that until you stop and think about it, you're almost acting on autopilot. And for me, the ability to stop autopilot in negotiations and actually be making conscious choices about why am I doing this? What are the options? Which way will I go? Is the biggest challenge. And, you know, reflecting back on the positives and the negatives is the best way of learning any of these communication skills. But you also need to have a framework to actually put around that reflection so that there's some, you know, sense about it, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I've enjoyed our conversation around all of this. I know that you uh, provide some great outsourced IT services and managed IT services. If somebody was listening to the podcast and needed some help on their IT managed services, how would they get in touch with you, Tal? Uh, well, it's, it's really very simple. I can be contacted via LinkedIn um, and hopefully you can insert that information somewhere. Absolutely. Uh, That'll be on the show notes. To- reasonably easy to find uh, online. I certainly don't hide myself. Um, I can be uh, contacted uh, via our our website. There's all the contact details and phone numbers uh, on there on uh, www.majestic.com.au. And I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with people um, about any topic whatsoever with no, no commitment, no, you, nobody owes me anything. There are no strings attached and just have a discussion and explore what can potentially happen in the future. In fact, a lot of our really good relationships now didn't mature or materialize into a business relationship for a few years yeah. after they started. I'm very mindful that people, when they start talking to us, more often than not, are already engaged in another contract with somebody else. Mm. And that's okay. I'm happy to still provide some advice. Fantastic. And I know you've got a few interesting philanthropic interests as well. So people wanting to uh, explore that may want to reach out as well. Without a doubt. Uh, And if I may, um, just as before we wrap up, uh, I will say I'll say this. Uh, in Melbourne alone, there are about 1,400 IT service providers that support the SME sector, so the small and medium organizations in, in, in this state. We operate very differently to them, and I know that everybody says that, but we make a very bold statement that de-risks our relationship with our clients, and that is that we aim to make our clients achieve their, um, their own objectives. That's our goal, and that's how we measure ourselves. So it's a bold statement in that we say we, at the very least, will be cost neutral for a client, mm-hmm. at best revenue accretive, or if the objective of the organization is not about revenue, but it's about supporting more patients as we deal with the healthcare sector a lot and in the NFP sector. So uh, supporting people in need or supporting patients, and that's where their money needs to go to. Uh, and those are their objectives, and they want to double the number of patients that they can support in their own particular domain. That's what we measure ourselves against. How is the investment achieving those kind of outcomes? Great. I love it. Well, Tal, thanks again for your time today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Negotiation in Real Life podcast. If you've taken away some great tips from this episode, I'd love to hear about it. So please connect with me via my website or LinkedIn. 
If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to learn more tips to improve your negotiations, head to our website, nicoledavidsonnegotiation.com.au, where you can follow my blog, watch presentations and download resource sheets. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you get every episode as it comes out. If you have an interesting negotiation story that you'd like to share with my audience, head to the website and complete a guest application. Until the next episode, happy negotiating.